0: I'm teasing. I'm joshing. <laughs> Amen. Amen. No, I, 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 I don't want you to miss... This is going to be more of a teachy, preachy message. I, I don't want you to miss this in Nehemiah. It's so good. I don't know how else to say it other than it's just so good. Uh, because when we were looking at Nehemiah and the and the survey that he did in the dark and, and how he would go uh, and he would survey the land with the beast that he was on. I don't know if it was a horse. I don't know if it was a mule. I don't know if it was a donkey. I don't know what he was riding on. But Nehemiah was out in in, in dark. And uh, mind you they don't have you know the street lights on like we do in Conway. I mean it's dark. And so he he's having to go kind of slow but He's taking his time. And so he's able to remember every little point that he made it to whenever he was looking at the gates and the walls that was destroyed. And I want to focus in on the gates. Now there are about ten gates. There are several gates that are mentioned here in chapter number three. And we'll start at the sheep gate in chapter number three, verse one. And so, uh, every single gate is a literal gate. I want you to understand that it's a it's a real gate. It's a real fixture. It's really there. Uh, but there's a there's a symbolism behind every single gate, and and it's great when you get to look underneath the surface of what's there in front of the eyes. Uh, uh, it's uh, if you have been a Christian any length of time at all, you realize that there's more than what meets the eye. There's a spiritual nature to things. I mean, whenever you look around at creation, you're not worshiping the creation but you're worshiping the creator of the creation and there's just something spiritual about whenever you get out in nature it's not the creation that you're worshiping but you realize that the god of heaven has made his handiwork known i mean even even romans chapter 1 verse 20 even declares that it, Essentially, by paraphrasing that that the even the, even the world acknowledges that there's a God uh, by just looking around at creation, and so when you look at creation, you can see a lot of a uh, deep meaning and understanding of the characteristics of God and so this morning, when we were looking at the burden and the vision that Nehemiah had uh, for the people of God, we saw the wall and we we looked at what the purpose of that wall was and then and then we looked at the workers and their willingness to work. Lastly, tonight we're going to look at point number 3, the work and its wonders. There are some wonders to each one of these gates, the the things that they built and repaired. Uh the first gate we're going to notice in chapter number uh 3 in verse number 1. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 1, And Elisha the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priest, and they builded the sheep gate. That's the first one. Notice what they did about this sheep gate. They sanctified it. They set it apart. And and they set up the doors even unto the tower of Mia. They sanctified it. Unto the tower of Hananiel. So I want you to notice something very special about this gate right here. The Sheep Gate speaks of salvation. The Sheep Gate is the starting point in Nehemiah's survey. And I want you to notice that this Sheep Gate right here, this Sheep Gate right here was the gate where they brought animals into the city of Jerusalem. Including the animals for temple, sacrifices. This was a very special gate. I want you to notice as well, this is the only gate of which it is recorded that it was sanctified and set apart for God. It was the only gate that was sanctified. This gate reminds us of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. And Nehemiah could have began his record with any gate, but he mentions the Sheep Gate first. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. So apart from Jesus Christ and His sacrifice, we would have nothing eternal or satisfying. And I noticed that nothing is said about this gate Having any locks or bars on it. Now, as we go through and we look at these other gates, you're going to see these other gates, they'll have locks and they'll have bars on it. I found it so interesting that this gate right here did not have any locks or bars on it. And this gate, the sheep gate, is a representation of salvation. You know what that tells me? No one's locked out from being saved, no one's barred from being saved. Christ Jesus came and died for every man, woman, boy, and girl. He died for the. He took up. Uh, he took on the sins of the whole world, and it is because of the sheep gate. It is because of the Lamb of God we have salvation. I thought that was interesting. Then we're going to move on, and we are going to look at the fish gate. Look in verse number three, but the fish gate. Did the sons of uh, Hassanah build who also laid the beams thereof and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof. So there's locks on this gate and the bars thereof. So there's locks and bars on the fish gate. There wasn't locks and bars on the sheep gate. Well, the fish gate, it speaks of service. I want you to notice this about this fish gate. This fish gate was located just to the west of the sheep gate. It was located between the tower of Mia and the tower of Hananel, as mentioned in verse 1. Now, these two towers that are mentioned, they are part of the city's defense system. And they were close to the citadel or the tower of David, where the soldiers guarded the temple and protected protected them from the northern approach of potential invasion of an attack. And so at the fish gate, merchants used this gate when they brought fish from the Mediterranean Sea. And there they would have the fish market near the city. I noticed that because of the location and the position of the fish gate, it was known as a key entry point into the city. It is here at the fish gate where people would volunteer their time to man and even guard the gates. And so I see that as an act of service. I see that as symbolic as a, as a Christian. You, you get saved and then you serve God. It's not the other way around. You don't start serving God to get saved. No, God saves you first and then you'll want to serve the Lord. And so I found that to be very special and it's almost methodical how he lays out each point of these gates. I want you to notice as well the, the old gate the old gate in verse number 6. The Bible talks about the old gate there in verse number 6. And, and this gate also had doors. And, and this one also had locks. And this one also had bars. Now, I, in my study, I found that the old gate speaks of sovereignty. And this old gate is located in the northwest corner of the city. Now, I had to do a little digging. But I don't want you to miss this. This gate's also called the new quarter. Now, it's called the old gate in in the Bible, but some scholars would also call it the new quarter. I thought, what a paradox that is, that, that the old gate leads to the new quarter. I got to thinking about how if we were to abandon the old, there could never be the new. Don't miss that. Y'all remember one of my favorite verses, Jeremiah six sixteen, where the Bible says, Stand ye in the way and see, and ask for the old paths, which is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they say we will not walk therein. I got to thinking about that when it comes to the Christian life in the in the Church of America, we, we try to trade out what's already been proven to work. We we've seen it work time and time again, but we wanna new cart religion. We wanna water everything down, including the the gospel. They wanna change the music. They wanna change the manuscripts. They wanna change the modesty. They wanna change the methods. But you'll never have a new touch of God on you if you abandon the old. I thought, that was, I thought that was just so good about the old gate and how God and His divine sovereignty realizes that. I mean, uh, it, it is of the straight and narrow way. It, it is of the old paths. And, and I noticed that the old gate is that narrow way. It's, and the world wants to produce a new gate. Well, the new gates never mentioned here in the text. You know, what's the Bible say about that narrow way? And what's the Bible say about that broad way? That broad way leads to destruction. But then I want you to notice the valley gate. Look look in verse number 13, where it talks about the valley gate in verse number 13. And it talks in, in verse number 13 of how there's locks on this gate, and there's bars on this gate, and 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 this this is on the wall. It's right there next to the dung gate. Well, the valley gate speaks of suffering. It's symbolic of suffering. And the valley gate is where Nehemiah began his survey in in the dark. Uh, before, before, right after uh, he got to uh, the the sheep gate, uh, he he ended up at the valley gate. And the valley gate is located at the southwest corner of the city walls. And so this was about 500 yards away from the Dung Gate. We're going to get to the Dung Gate in a minute. And uh, the Dung Gate is actually very, very deep. But the, it, it is, it is. And, uh, and the, the, Christian, the Christian needs to understand this before we get to the Dung Gate. We need to understand this about the Valley Gate. That every Christian needs a Valley Gate. They don't need a dung gate, they need a valley gate. Because this speaks of suffering and humility. Anytime you think of the symbolism of walking in a valley, you're between two hills or two mountains. Now I think of, when I think of, of walking through a valley, I think of walking down really, really low where it's cold and damp and dark and, and, and dungy. That's what I think of. And I think about how God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. For First Peter chapter five verse five says, "Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble." God does not like a proud look. Uh, He doesn't like a haughty spirit. Uh, There's going to be times where if you try to have that proud look where God will quite literally, through His sovereign hand, push you right back down where you need to be. You remember earlier I said this morning that we're all broken. And God can only use the broken for He's the heavenly potter. If God's gonna use you, sometimes we'll have to break you and we'll have to put you in that valley. And it's unfortunate that we have to go through that. But there's growth in the valley for there's humility in the valley. And it's in the valley where we learn to rely on God. It's where we learn to trust in God. And we won't learn to trust in God when we're sitting on the mountaintop. Think about the Laodicean church. They they didn't trust in God. But the Bible talked about them being a wealthy church. They didn't need God. But, but it's that lowly crowd that needed God. I, I've seen in my life where in, in, in certain situations with particular friends it seemed like the ones that they, they are constantly going into storm after storm after storm they seem to be the most in tune with God. I noticed that, and and I and I've I've been counseling a, a dear friend of mine for about two and a half, three years now, and it's and it's been storm after storm after storm, and and emotionally I'm getting pulled in with it, and spiritually I'm getting pulled in with it because I'm wondering, God, what are you doing with this man and his life? But now we have starting to come out on the other side, and and it's start, we're starting to see the day break off in the distance, and and I realize that God is molding and making this individual into who he wants this individual to be. And this individual is a mighty force to be reckoned with because he has a testimony like none other. And he is uh, inspired by God to the point to where he's very vocal in his uh, standards and his conviction and in his salvation to where he'll share the gospel with absolutely anybody that gives him a chance. Whereas three years ago he wouldn't do it. How did he get that way? He went through his valley gate. And every now and then we have to go through a valley so God can get us back to where we need to be. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. God will exalt you. He will lift you up in the right season, in the right time. But you must humble yourselves, submit yourselves to Almighty God, and let Him lift you up. It is only as we yield to Christ and serve others that we can truly enter into the fullness of life that He has for us. Now let's talk about the dung gate just for a moment. In verse number 14, it talks about this dung gate and, and how it has uh, locks and bars as well. But this dung gate is a very particular place in verse number 14. You see, this dung gate was located at the southernmost tip of the city. I mean, it was like the the the, the doormat, if you will, of the city. And it was... It was the main exit to the Valley of Hinnom, where the city disposed of its garbage. That's how. That's part of the reason why it got called the Dung Gate. But I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss this because it's right there next to the Valley of Hinnom. Okay. Gehenna, Gehenna is the Greek word used for hellfire. Found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. And Gehenna is also another name for the valley of Hinnom. So here the dung gate is, and it's right there next to hellfire. It's right there next to the valley of Hinnom. So, in essence, the valley of Hinnom is a picture of hell itself. And Jesus used this as a picture of hell where he says it is a place where the worm dieth not, according to Mark chapter 9, verse 44. It's literally hell on earth. It got its name hell on earth. Why did it get its name hell on earth? Because they was having abortion clinics in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 6 where King Manasseh sacrificed children to false gods and idols in that very valley. That's why it's called the Valley of Hinnom. That's why it's called Hellfire. Could you imagine the screams as the babies were tossed and walked through that valley, how they were forced to be there. It was also a place, according to Second Chronicles chapter 33, verse 6, It was a place where they used enchantments. They used witchcraft and dealt with demonic spirits and wizards. And so I want you to picture this for a moment here, this place that they're at. They're having these children walk out naked as they're tossed into this valley and they light them on fire. Meanwhile, you got bystanders standing naked and they're doing enchantments and incantations and they're practicing witchcraft. Sounds like some Epstein's Island kind of stuff going on right there, if you ask me. Amen. (laughs) It sounds like some wickedness. It sounds like some LGBTQ mafia kind of stuff. That's what it it sounds like sodomy to me. And the Bible called it hellfire. (laughs) Don't go there. The Dungate. The only thing that's good for is to throw your trash it. Don't even go near it. And so that lets us know there's just some places us Christians, we ought not go. There's just some gates we shouldn't walk through. Amen. There's some places we shouldn't even look at. And so the scars remain of all that that happened in Second Chronicles chapter 33, verse number six. Check me out. See if it ain't in the Bible. I mean, the witchcraft, it's real. The enchantments, it's real. The demonic spirits, it's real. The wizards, it's real. But King Josiah knew. He knew in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 10, he knew that he had to take that valley and desecrate it and turn it into a rubbish heap. He says, I don't, I'm shutting Planned Parenthood down. I'm shutting the abortion clinics down. We're getting rid of all the wickedness that's going on. And the only thing we're going to do in that valley from now on is we're just going to burn the trash. We're not burning babies no more. We're not slaughtering babies no more. We're not doing wickedness any The dung gate. Then we see the fountain gate. But the gate of the fountain in verse number 15, it speaks of success. For the fountain gate was on the east wall, just north of the dung gate. And it was in a very strategic location near the pool of Silam the old city of david and the water tunnel built by king hezekiah back in 2nd kings chapter 20 verse 20 and there was a spring that fed that water system because that was an important source of water in that city now the bible in the bible water for drinking is a picture of the holy ghost and while water for washing is a picture of the Word. And so I realized that the only way you're going to have success in your life is by drinking from the Word of God. And whenever you read from the Word of God, the Holy Spirit comes by and washes some things clean out of your life. It will help you when you get a hold of the fountain gate. But then, then we have the water gate. You say, well, that's the same thing. No, it's, it's actually not. Look at, look at verse number 26. In 26, it talks about the water gate that's there. And the water gate spe- speaks of spirituality. And the water gate led from the old city of David to that spring. And it's located adjacent to the Kidron Valley. The first time I ever heard of Kidron, I didn't realize it was a valley, there was an evangelist that, that came by. It was at my wife's church. You know, when she went to growing up. And, and his oldest daughter, her name was Kidron. And, you know, if you, if you meet missionaries and you meet evangelists, a lot of times they'll give their children Bible names. Well, I, I, I told the, the missionary, the evangelist, kind of done both. I said, well, I said, you have, you have uh, Hezekiah and you have Ezekiel. I said, those are Bible names. I said, but you named your daughter Kidron. It's not a Bible name. said, oh, yes, it is. The Bible talks about the Kid Run Valley. So there I was, a young preacher, thought I knew it all, and I realized I didn't know anything. Yeah, you know, they they always say a closed mouth gathers no foot. I should have kept that one to myself. (laughs) Amen. So at the Watergate, we realize it's located adjacent to the Kid Run Valley. And you must understand that Jerusalem was one of the few great cities that was not built near a river. And so the water supply it had was reservoirs and just little springs of water back, back home on, on the acres of land we had. <clears throat> but before you even got to the creek, there would be little springs that would pop up. I mean, just a little bit of water. How they survived off of that, I don't know. I, I just don't know. But we see the Watergate reminds us of the Word of God. We see in chapter number 8 how Ezra and the priest, they came out and preached the Word of God at the water gate. We also see in verse number 26 that there's no mention of anyone trying to improve or repair the water gate. Now now notice up to this point, they would add some, some bars and they would add some locks and they would always add things to make improvements. Well, this is a place... That This is a place of spirituality. And some things just don't need to be improved on. And so the Watergate does remind us of the Word of God. For the Word of God, just like the Watergate, doesn't need to be repaired or improved on. Just like the King James Bible doesn't need to be repaired or improved on. Some things just don't need to be changed. Then we see as well the horse gate in chapter number 3 verse number 28 it talks about the horse gate i mentioned this verse uh earlier in a in the morning worship when i talked about everyone against his own house over here at the horse gate now the horse gate speaks of strife or warfare and the horse gate stood north of the water gate adjacent to the temple area and this is where they had an execution back in Second Chronicles chapter 23, verse 15. But God warned his people not to trust in horses and chariots over there in Deuteronomy chapter number 17, verses 40 through 20. But King Solomon imported them from Egypt in First Kings chapter ten. And they became an important part of the nation's defense system, according to Isaiah chapter two, verse seven. Now I tell you I did a little bit of study. I did a little bit of studying. And so the horse gate reminds us that there is warfare in the Christian's life. And you can even find in Second Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 through 2 that we must always be ready to do battle. With who? With the devil. With the wiles and the taxes of devil. That's why Ephesians 6 tells us to put on the whole armor of God. And it, it is significant. I found it to be interesting that the priests were the ones that repaired this gate as well as the sheep gate for they were both near the temple area. I, I thought that was I thought that was a good little nugget there. All right, got, got a few more. Got three more. Hold on with me. All right, we almost done. I want to show you as well the east gate. The east gate there at the end of chapter number 29. It talks about the east gate. Now the east gate, is symbolic of sunrise and the east gate led directly to the temple and what some would call today the golden gate and Jewish tradition would say that Jesus Christ himself entered into the temple on Palm Sunday through the eastern gate I, I thought that was interesting For the prophet Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord depart from the temple at the east gate in Ezekiel chapter 10 and in Ezekiel chapter 11. And the Lord will return to the city in the same way according to Ezekiel chapter number 43. He's going to split open that eastern sky, friend, very soon. And so when we look at this, we have every reason to associate this gate with the coming of the Lord and to remind ourselves to abide in Him. Then we see in verse number 31 the gate of Mithad. And this gate in verse number 31 speaks of searching or appointment. And this gate right here was located at the northeast corner of the city. This was also considered to be The inspection gate. Some people called it the inspection gate. Why? Because it was here where they would round up troops and call them for inspection. Also, the north side of Jerusalem, the north side of Jerusalem, I found in my study, it happened to be the most vulnerable to attack. So it only made sense to make this part right here, this gate right here, the place where you would want to put an army. I'd want to put my my army where I realized the enemy would attack first and attack most. And and so there that lets us know that the enemy will attack. And we ought to be ready. We, uh, just in case he comes by our way, there's always going to be that appointment. What are we going to do when the enemy does show up? Are we going to cower? Or are we going to stand in who we are in Christ? But then I want to show you, this is very special, the last gate. Verse number 32. And between the going up of the corner unto the sheep gate, repaired the goldsmiths and the merchants. Now didn't we just start with the sheep gate? I thought we did. But here we are and we're back, we're back at the sheep gate again in verse number 32. And so Nehemiah records that he is right here at the sheep gate one more time. I got to thinking about that. Why in the world would He end where He started? Well, it goes back to Revelation 1.8. Jesus is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. But I got to thinking, it's just a little bit deeper than that. Follow, follow with me for just for a moment. I got this typed out here. You don't want to miss it. They ended up in the same place because the Jewish people there rejected their Messiah. You remember the Bible said he came unto his own and his own received him not. That's what the Bible says. And the people of Israel today, they have no sacrifice. They have no temple and they have no priesthood. We know that to be so. Also the book of Hosea chapter 3 verse 4 says so. But thank the Lord here and there the individual Jews will turn to Christ. And so the sheep gate reminds us that even the Jews can still be saved. He came into his own, but his own received him not. But to as many which would receive him, to them gave he power to be sons of God. The nation of Israel rejected their Messiah, but individuals out of that nation can still come to the saving grace and faith in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we must realize. Those individuals will come, but according to the book of Romans chapter 11, the nation as a whole has been blinded in unbelief. For Romans chapter 11 verse 25 says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of, of the gentile be come in what is the fullness of the gentile that's a deep question and i'll touch on it for just a minute i know y'all have heard me dance around it and mention it but that was whenever god interjected the church age that's whenever god grafted the gentile in and allowed us to be saved by grace through faith in the lord jesus christ and so whenever, whenever the, everybody comes together and the church is raptured out, God is going to have His dealing with the nation of Israel. More to come later. So I see that no one person could have accomplished the work of repairing the walls and the, restoring the gates. It's going to take a lot of people to do this kind of work. See, it took the leadership on Nehemiah's part but it also took the cooperation of the people. So each had a place to feel and a job to do. So it's the same way with the church today. And we must work together if we're going to be able to finish what God started and work for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? For as much as ye you know that your labor is not in vain. And so,